0: life. All of us, all human beings, desperately seek to avoid feeling utterly helpless. No one on earth wishes to feel that sense of powerlessness that comes from being completely disenfranchised and the fear that comes with it. We tend to react badly when faced with this possibility, often violently We humans wish to retain some semblance of control. This is a constant shared by all societies, at all times we find, and those societies who experience an utter loss of agency tend to react very badly to the experience. Consider then the residents of London in the ninth century just for a moment. Traders, merchants, craftsmen, Town dwellers. For the last 50 years of their lives, they had been vulnerable to forces beyond them. They could not stop or even remotely influence the actions of the kings of Mercia and Wessex, or the actions of Scandinavians, originating either from their cold, icy homelands, or from their growing diaspora across the Irish Sea. A few chapters ago, I described the impact of the violations of London, of the sense of helplessness as the Vikings had raided the town, slain its residents, possibly carried off loved ones to become slaves. One listener asked me if we could attest if the residents had felt something like post-traumatic stress disorder from such a thing, and I concluded that we could not possibly know. I did say, however, that one insight into the mentality of the residents of London was the fact they remained in their town and persevered. That while larger and richer trade emporiums like Quintovitch in northern France had been abandoned due to Viking deprivations, London had stubbornly and defiantly endured and resisted. But after King Alfred of Wessex had ordered the town rebuilt behind the old Roman walls in 886, after he had placed a Mercian in charge, he also did something else, something much more profound. He changed the nature of Wessex itself. He militarized the entire country, everyone was expected to fight now, if called upon, not just the descendants of high-born war bands. In hamlets and villages and towns, including London, his subjects were expected to be part of a state-wide war machine, a system known as the Fjord. The residents of London were no longer entirely helpless. They had been given the tools to manifest some small iota of control over their fate. They had been granted the ability to no longer feel powerlessness. What follows is a much-overlooked eight-year period which was to show what the Londoners did with this empowerment. London was about to bare its teeth and was going to be surprised to find, these teeth could draw blood. This is a chapter filled with fast-moving warfare, violence, pretty terrifying foes, anger, rage and triumph. A slice of the story of London that is overlooked by many, but in doing so, they overlook arguably some of the most important years in the city's early history. Welcome then to chapter 15 of the story of London the Fangs of London. So now we move forward in the tale of this place, Vitas Londonia, as it was called, stamped on several coins of this era. London had been rebuilt, reconsecrated, restored and renovated. It was safe behind old Roman walls, newly repaired and made whole again. Those walls were impressive, majestic even. They were huge. They dominated the landscape for miles around they probably caused a little shock and even a little awe. Their purpose was to intimidate people. Across the river, King Alfred had constructed, or ordered the construction, of a new burr the name given to the regular series of forts that now began to dot his nation. This one was constructed on the jot of land known to us today as Southwark. The whole place bristled with an unmistakable menace. Before those walls were new docks, and behind those stones, streets. A new town had been planned out, a community parcelled out between magnates and bishops. Its overlord was the Lord of Mercia, no longer a king but married to the king's daughter. London was now also designated a burr, a Fortress. Here, the kingdom's new standing army, the Fjord, could find places to sleep, be reprovisioned, tend to their wounded, and hold off against larger foes. We begin this chapter five years after we ended the last one, in the year 891. London is settling down, building, not really growing quickly, but still growing Ships are now using its new docks to bring goods to trade with the community. It has returned to its regional market role, but not as successfully as it had been. Still, slow and steady progress is still progress. Nothing terribly exciting or bad had taken place in London since its rededication behind those walls. But in 891, Across the Channel in Europe, something terrible was happening. There began in this year a series of bad harvests. The crops failed. This in turn caused shortages of food, which was bad. But in the hands of inept rulership, the bad harvest triggered a series of famines. Great was the suffering of the people of the lands of the Franks. A famine is not just a lack of food, it signals a breakdown in society itself. For those couple of years, not only was there a shortage of food, there was another breakdown in merchant activity, and by extension, in the generating of profit. Well, put more simply and more brutally, over the years 891 and 892, the Frankish lands became significantly less profitable for Vikings to raid. Added to this, the Franks had started improving their anti-Viking fighting techniques and had actually won a few battles against large Viking raiding forces, including a spectacular victory in northern France at the Battle of the Dial. The Vikings in Francia began to wonder if the grass was not going to be greener elsewhere. Maybe they should relocate and raid someone else. Like Wessex, for example. For their part, the Franks thought this a most capital idea. They thought it was such a good idea, they arranged to give the Vikings all the ships they needed to facilitate a cross-channel invasion. Sorry, not sorry, Wessex, we want these guys gone. And so, in 893, a new, much-overlooked war erupted in Wessex. The newly-made Kingdom of the English now faced a massive invasion, arguably even larger than the one who had turned up decades earlier, the Great Heathen Army. A Viking fleet of 250 Frankish ships sailed across the Channel and landed off the south coast of Kent, they came inland near the port of Rye, travelled up the river Rother, and after making short work of one of Alfred's new fortresses, set up base in the town of Appledore in Kent. This was a gargantuan force, comprising of thousands of Vikings, and above all, they were mostly on horseback. This was a mobile Viking force, And it was made up of veterans of many years' worth of campaigning against the huge armies of the Franks. They were experienced, brilliant, and very deadly. This was catastrophic news. But then the news got worse because at the exact same time, another force of Vikings landed on the northern coast of Kent, setting up base near Rochester in a village called Milton Regis. While much smaller than the force of the south, this only numbered between 800 and 2,500 men at most, it was clear from the stories that this force was led by a particularly ferocious Viking called Hayston. If half of what they said about him was true, then this was one cunning and very dangerous Viking leader. Over three decades previous, Hirston had made his name as a young and upcoming commander fighting under the leadership of Bjorn Ironsides. They had conducted raids against the Christian north of the Iberian Peninsula and then against the Muslims of the Umayyad Emirate of Cordoba. Their forces passed the Straits of Gibraltar, raided the Ibrisid Caliphate of North Africa, before turning their attention onto the Balearic Islands, the south coast of the Umayyads lands, and then the Christian cities on the south coast of France, Hasten then went on to pillage his way across Italy, including sacking Pisa. He raided the territories in the region owned by the Byzantine Empire. He plundered North Africa again, where he gained some African slaves, who he would eventually sell back in the Viking slave market of Dublin, all before sailing home and despoiling Pampelona along the way. Haston had not retired, he was only getting started. He accepted a huge mercenary contract from the King of Brittany to help him fight off an invasion of the Franks. And in recent years, he had joined in various successful raiding parties all over the Frankish lands. Haston appears in our story with this track record and is now leading a hostile force about a day sailing from London. Alfred and Wessex now faced a genuinely difficult and scary situation. It appeared as if the Vikings suddenly had their act together. They were not just here on the off chance they could raid and do a bit of Viking. This seemed to be a two-pronged attack upon the peninsula of Kent. If these two armies could join forces, it would possibly mean that Kent was lost to Alfred. Added to this to the north of them just across the thames was essex which was under the control of the viking run kingdom of east anglia who was now under a new king somebody called eric who had taken the throne after guthrum had died a few years previous if they joined with these Vikings, it would escalate the war even more. And it's worth remembering to the north of East Anglia was the Viking-ran kingdom of Northumbria. If the Viking there joined forces, if the whole Viking diaspora of England joined with the newcomers, Wessex could not survive. Suddenly, potentially, this new invasion promised to threaten Alfred's kingdom like none since the battle days of either the Boneless, Guthrum, and Halfton Whiteshirt, and London was automatically in the thick of it. After all, that force of Haston was just up the River Thames from them. Alfred, for his part, mobilised the fyrd and occupied maidstone, we think. It would make sense. From there, he could keep an eye on the Vikings and move to prevent them from joining up. But he clearly decided that he would do what he did to Guthrum to one of the Viking forces. Why fight when you can bribe? So he targeted Hasten's forces, as they were the smaller and arguably cheaper. Alfred sent word that he would offer the Viking leader great gifts and allow him to leave freely and safely. All Hasten had to do was be baptised, and he would be rewarded. As Alfred's military forces tried their best to keep a lid on the Viking encampment in Appledore, his diplomats worked their magic on Hayston, and it was finally agreed that the Viking leader would take the king up on the offer. Alfred just needed a safe place to conduct the meeting and the baptism. Canterbury would have been ideal, but with the Appledore Vikings so close, not likely, Rochester was even nearer, but Haston's forces were only a few hours march away, so that was ruled out. Quickly, it became apparent that the only real safe place nearby would be London. It was secure and ideal for this situation. And so King Alfred of Wessex arranged for the experienced and wily Viking commander, Haston, to sail up the River Swale to the River Medway, and then from the River Medway to the River Thames, and then to London. We can imagine, and I'm afraid only imagine, as accounts of what followed are scattered and obscured, the moment that came after. A Viking warlord, probably with a ferocious Viking warband, sailing up the Thames on a ship under some kind of flag of truce. They make the bend in the river, and there before them stand the gigantic walls of the town. Huge things. A relic of Rome's past imperium. Its gates are stout and well defended. Its docks busy. No, certainly it was no Paris at this stage, but it was still an impressive sight. And thus, in 893, the warlord Hayston arrived in London. Now, we are not exactly sure where Hayston was baptised, or if this ceremony in London was his actual baptism, or some follow-up from his baptism. But I favour the idea that this is where the terrifying Viking leader was going to be anointed in Christ. And as scary as those Vikings seemed, London suddenly realised it could do scary also. Perhaps scarier. Uh, you see, as Haston arrived, he was to be met by the king, which meant he was met by the king's guard, the best troops in Wessex, and also by the elderman of London, Ethelred, who brought his personal guard, the best troops in Mercia. And then, very probably, this was supplemented by an armed delegation of Londoners. Yet this was a show of force, not a show of violence. And we suspect Haston didn't suspect any violence would happen, as he also brought along his wife and his two sons with him. Now the chances are, he would have landed at the docks, which would in time become known as Billingsgate. From there he would have gone on into the town, and Haston and his family would probably have been escorted to St. Paul's. There he would have been baptised, and given past events, we're fairly sure Alfred would have done the baptising. We also suspect Haston had his whole family baptised, as we know Alfred was named as the godfather of one of his two young boys, and Athelstan of Mercia was named the godfather of the other. Haston took sacred oaths that he would keep his word and leave the lands of the king in peace, He handed over hostages, probably, to vouchsafe his word, and in return, Alfred, we do know, bestowed expensive gifts upon him. Despite the Christian solemnity, baptisms are joyful events, baptisms to cement a new peace deal even more so, and we could assume that there was some kind of celebration afterwards, not a wild bacchanalia, as Alfred does not seem to have gone in for that type of thing, but very probably a celebration of some kind. London wasn't a large place. Even if only a few were invited to this gathering, everyone would have known about it. For the first time in its history, then, London has found itself as a place of diplomacy, of the meeting of warring factions, a place where peace was established. This was a mantle he was to wear many times in the future. Oaths taken, promises made. Haston and his family and his bodyguards manned their ship and returned back to their base in Kent, carried by the tide and the expectations of the residents of London. And the city's faith in the providence of the Lord was proven by the fact that Haston did indeed leave his base in Milton Regis. But alas, he didn't return home. Haston immediately sailed north and landed and set up base in Benfleet, on the north side of the Thames. This was a day's march direct from London. Nominally, under East Anglian control from which place Haston could raid South Eastern Mercia to his heart's content or even focus his ships up the Thames to London he had gone back on his word he had clearly lied to Alfred and used the ceremony to buy time to relocate to a more defensible position away from Alfred's army in Maidstone This betrayal probably annoyed the residents of London beyond words. Had not their king showed true Christian virtue by extending brotherhood and peace to this savage? Had not the town treated him as an honoured guest and extended to him courtesies and respect? Was this perfidy indicative ...of the rootless nature of the barbarian soul. Can we show such people any mercy? All right, I'm going to try and stay focused on London as much as possible here. So the account of the wider war led by Alfred and his son, Edward Aetherling, I'm going to merely summarise very briefly, basically... Alfred's new system of state organization really came into its own at this point. His version of Wessex was effectively a polity whose organizing principle was war. Every aspect of the citizenry was galvanized. The bur system meant population centres were now part of his armed forces. His new standing army, the Fjord, was made up of subjects, non-professional soldiery. But as Alfred had discovered in his early campaigns, such men, if used correctly, could be just as effective as a war band. For months, his forces harried and plagued the Vikings in a guerrilla war. It was a bloody, chaotic, low-intensity campaign. Viking bands would break out of their bastion in Appledore, using horses to raid and plunder without warning, and then race hell-to-leather back to return with their spoils. At the same time, each raid never knew if it would run into a well-organized ambush that was designed to wipe them out. It was a merciless campaign of small-scale engagements, but no one able to engage fully. The Vikings in Appledore finally decided to regain the tactical advantage. They burst out of Appledore and began an extended campaign across the south of England. The heartlands of Wessex were now vulnerable to them and exposed. At the same time they did this, they sent out their ships down the river Rother out to sea and they sailed around to the Viking Diaspora and Kingdom of East Anglia, suggesting the Appledore Army was hoping to rampage across Wessex and then join up with their ships. This also sent a clear signal that King Eric of East Anglia seemed to be part of this anti-Wessex alliance. Luckily for everyone, the Vikings had begun to loot and plunder, which was their main purpose, but this made their previously highly mobile cavalry force, now a much slower force, with an extended baggage train of loot and slaves. The army of Wessex finally caught up with them, only 36 miles southwest of London, in Farnham, in Surrey, and led by the Aetheling Edward, and Aetheling is simply the old English word meaning prince, by the way, the Saxons literally massacred the Vikings, A large body of surviving raiders, however, now on foot, raced with all their worth to try to get to the safety of Essex. They got as far as the Thames. The river was an impassable barrier to them. But in their desperation, many swam to one part of the river that had an island part way across. However, the exact details are a bit uncertain. I've read some historians who claimed that these survivors found themselves on Thorn Island, or Thorny Island, modern-day Westminster. There had been a monastery dedicated to St. Peter here since the age of King Offa. We do not hear of any attack upon the monastery in 894. Had the monastery been abandoned? Or did the Viking survivors of the Battle of Farnham, swimming across the fast-flowing Thames, no doubt with a more few of them drowning, did their arrival drive off the monks? Uh, we do not know. But I've also read other historians who say that the island they found themselves on was an island in the river Colm, which flows into the Thames near what is now called Heathrow Airport, and that the location was near a village called Thorny, a place now called Iver, which we know existed in Saxon times, and this is where all the action took place. It's hard to work out which one is the right theory. What we do know, however, is that the Aetheling, Prince Edward, was able to besiege them upon that island. They were surrounded. Only Edward Aetheling now had a problem. His fjord was close to its end of its service time. Alfred's ability to gain normal citizens to join his armies came with a price. The men served for a very strict amount of time and then returned home. These civilian soldiers had already fought a great victory for the prince and had taken part in some serious marches, but the nature of the system that Alfred had brought in was that the men would serve but only for the duration of their service. Once that time was up, they went home, that was the long and short of it. Edward supposedly needed reinforcements, as what remained of his feud was pitiful and if the Vikings knew how small it was, they'd probably stage a breakout from the island they were besieged upon. Luckily, his father was on his way with a new force, and in the meantime, London was ready to answer the call. For me, this is why I suspect it was Thorn Island, which would become known as Westminster centuries from now, and that would be the location, because it was right on London's doorstep. The Baguara, the citizen army of London, marshalled and marched out either to Buckinghamshire or, as I believe, taking the short walk past the remains of Londonwick. Here they found the Aetherling Edward and his men and supplemented his forces. A Mexican standoff began, possibly on the Isle of Westminster. Edward and the Londoners did not have enough men to charge the island and finish off these Vikings but these Vikings didn't know the Saxons besieging them were that small, and so remained where they were. Edward was eventually joined by his brother-in-law, Ethelred, and they were waiting for his father's new fjord to come provide them with reinforcements so they could finish the foreigners off. However, news arrived, and it was not good. A massive new fleet of over a hundred Viking ships was spotted off the coast of Wessex, This was the fleet of Northumbria and East Anglia, and they were sailing along the south coast of England. With Wessex now extended like this, it was clear the northern Scandinavian-ran kingdoms had decided now was a good time to join forces with the Vikings out of Appledore. The Viking diaspora was now firmly based in England and knew Wessex couldn't be in all places at once. Sixty ships besieged Exeter on the south coast of Devon, while the rest hit the north coast of Devon. At the exact same time, word arrived that Hirston had begun taking his men out of his new base in Benfleet and was pillaging eastern Mercia. Wessex now faced a gigantic four-front war. King Alfred needed to act and act fast, and he did. He took the majority of his forces out west to defend his heartland. And as such... He could only send his son and son-in-law, a small, almost token force, to deal with the Vikings on Thorny Island. It wouldn't be enough. There was no way Edward and Æthelred could storm those Vikings. But it would be enough to get them to surrender. ...Edward negotiated a ceasefire with these Vikings... ...allowing them to exit and return on foot to East Anglia. They accepted the offer and were allowed to leave. Maybe they congratulated themselves on conning those Saxons... ...and planning to regroup and join Hastings' forces when they got the chance... ...but not realising that Edward and Aethelred and the Londoners... ...were feeling victorious at after having bluffed them to leave. Edward Aetheling probably returned to London... And with Ethelred of Mercia, and the Londoners were not quite done with these Vikings, Alfred's small reinforcements had joined them, and were now also in London. It wasn't many men, but it was enough. Athelred was a proper Mercian leader, which meant he liked to attack things, and this force of reinforcements, combined with the residents of London, was, in his mind, an effective fighting force, it was time to no longer feel helpless. It was time for London to take their destiny into their own hands. Aethelred again raised the citizen army of London and struck out quickly. We assume with Edward Aetheling, but we really do not know for sure. This was not a defensive operation. One day's march, just 30 miles away, with Hastings' base at Benfleet. This man had broken his oaths to their king, oaths he had made in London. It was time for payback. The Vikings guarding the base were taken by surprise. The Londoners surged their defences, their wooden walls offering scant protection from the fury of the attackers. The Vikings fell back, the Londoners literally butchering any who couldn't make it to the redoubt in time. The Scandinavians attempted to regroup, but it wasn't enough. The Mercians of London pushed their advantage, and they won the day. But not all was good news. The fight had gone perhaps too well. Quickly, the Londoners realised the main body of Viking troops was not there. They and the accursed Hasten were away from their base, burning, raiding, and pillaging Mercia. The Londoners had taken his headquarters but the Viking army was still free. Still, they had taken the camp, and in doing so they discovered something else. It was filled with booty and treasure, the loot these Vikings had carried with them coming to England, and the stuff they had raided from Kent and now Mercia. Added to this, the Vikings' ships were here, powerful, sleek and expensive longships, and if all of that wasn't enough, The Vikings had brought their wives and children here. All their wives and children were here, including Hastings. And that's where London showed its fangs. Generations of feeling helpless was able to be finally given voice. The Londoners' response was brutal and systematic. They piled... "'all the loot and treasures they could "'upon the best of the ships. "'They then gathered up all the women and children. "'These were now new slaves for the city "'to be used as they so desired, "'and if found valuable enough, sold off for profit. "'And then they smashed apart any excess ships, "'and these, along with the camp at Benfleet itself, they burned to the ground as the black smoke rose into the english sky the londoners sailed upriver, returning to no doubt roars of approval from their fellow residents they would have landed at the docks with their communities new ships sleek viking dragon ships now crewed by saxons and no doubt any frisians who were living in london the treasures of the people killed by the Vikings were also paraded, and to leers and jeers and cold appraisals of their worth, the women and children were unloaded onto the docks of London as well. The only family spared from this fate were the family of Haste and himself. After all, Athelred was a godfather of one of those boys, King Alfred the other. They would be kept safe they could be useful. And the town waited to see what the reaction of the Viking army raiding Mercia would be when they returned and found their ships and camp burned to the ground and their families taken. The response was chilling in its simplicity. Haston and his men simply regrouped and built a new fort in Shubury. He built a new fortress to provide a new safe harbour. Many of the men who'd been allowed to leave from Thorny Island joined up with them, and while the Appledore force was no longer viable or as powerful as it once had been, to these were now supplemented new Vikings from East Anglia. Hayston was clearly not finished yet. As London waited then, in his bastion of Shubury, Haystan was building up a new fleet and a new army. Men, ships and more were now flooding into his new bastion. The Londoners knew what he wanted. He and his men wanted their families back. They wanted revenge. The defences of the town were checked, and the town lived on tenterhooks. We can only imagine how they would try and proceed with their day-to-day life but always knowing that a day sailing away with the tide was a growing army of Vikings bent on revenge. In London, then, the men readied themselves. Battle was coming, an attack upon London itself. All London could do was prepare for the inevitable onslaught. And, annoyingly, this is where I shall leave this chapter. If anyone wishes, you can find a copy of the rough script I used for this episode on the website Imja, with links to that page in the description of this episode, and that will also link you to my Buy Me A Coffee page, where, if you feel so inclined and wish to show some generosity because of my work, you can contribute to my lifelong addiction to caffeine. The story of London will return next week with a breakdown of what happened next. Vikings on the doorstep and a war raging right across the nation. Both London and King Alfred were to be presented with the most terrible dilemmas. See you then.